I'd love to just read a short passage of Scripture with us today, uh, which we're just going to frame our time here in the Word and later in the table uh, together. I want to just, if we have it up there, uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And I want to I read this out loud to us because this is where we're all going to be concentrated today. And I want you to stand as a way of just revering God's Word and saying we're under the authority of what God's Word would have to say to us today. Amen. Amen. So here's what we see. Now the tax collectors and sinners, any sinners in the house? Don't whoop that, but yeah, acknowledge, right? Goodness. I'm going to turn later to another passage. Uh, They were all drawing near to hear him. And here's the big thing. How many sinners came to hear Jesus today? That's the question. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And everybody turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, a handshake, whatever, and just say, how dare he eat with them? I want you to say, how how dare he eat with them? How dare he? Right? Some of you don't want to talk to your neighbor. They will judgmentally be looking at you this whole entire time. One more time. If you haven't said hello to the people around you, go ahead and do that before you have a seat. Go ahead. Just go ahead. One more time. Yeah? So uh, thanks, thanks for playing along. My, you can have a seat. My, my kids, my kids are um, really little. They're at that toddler age, right? And, and we've got all these toys that I haven't played with in uh, decades, honestly. And someone the other day gave us like a train table. Not like the cool train that goes by itself, but like the one with the, the wooden wheels and the wooden tracks that can go certain ways. And you click them all together. And if you really have a lot of time on your hands, you make whole cities. Uh, my, my son loves trains, and every morning it's like, hey, Dad, let's go play trains. And, and we go downstairs, and, and I remember being a little kid, and the trains had these magnets on the end of them. You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You've seen these things? You've played with these things? Some of you are kindergarten teachers because you still like these things. And uh, they're, they're magnets, and it used to blow me away when I was a little kid. It just blew my mind that you'd put one down there, and then you'd just slide one up next to it, and it would, the little magnet, it would, it would go, and it'd connect, and then you'd be able to pull two trains, and you, you stack them up all on top of each other. Now, I'm a little older. I understand uh, the sophistication of magnets and what the science is behind it. But as a little kid, I was like, this is magic. I am a magician. Magnets are one of those, like, crazy um, realities of our lives that when you're a little kid, you have no idea what's happening with them, but you understand that they attract things to them. With those little trains, the thing that used to blow me away even more is that I could take the same train, and if I had it backwards on the track, I could push it towards the other one, and it would, it would, it would push the other one away, and you'd always be chasing it around the track, and there'd always be this gap, this little space. Some of you know what, you're, what I'm talking about. You've got little boys. Amen. Yeah, you did great. You guys amen the funniest things. You know that? <laughs> I'll be like, Jesus died for your sins, and the crickets. And you'll be like, you got boys. You're like, yep, we did. Amen. I love you guys. I love you. I love you. Yeah. So a magnet has two poles, right? It's got a north pole and a south pole. And it, the opposites of a magnet, they attract. The likes, they repel. And this is the whole principle behind the train. This is the whole story be, between why my son spends hours in the basement linking things together and pulling them around. And it's just this one very basic reality, this, this universal principle that we have here in this world. It seems paradoxical to me that the same looking thing has the power to push away the thing that I'm trying to attract it to. And, and if you just flip it around, it has the power to attract it to itself, the thing that was once pushed away. In Luke 15, Jesus is acting in all of his magnetic majesty. 
This is part of the paradox of Jesus, that it seems that if he was truly the Messiah, the long-awaited one, that if he was the Savior of the world, then everyone should, who, who comes into contact with this Jesus, be magnetically drawn to him. And yet, isn't it true that we see time and time again, just like we saw in verse 2 of Luke 15, something surprising. We find people repulsed by Jesus, repelled by Jesus. They are not attracted to him, but actually they become later his primary, what's the opposite of attraction? I think it's detraction, right? They become his detractors, the, the ones who would take away from his ministry. And this is the paradox. The same God, in the same person of Jesus, can be in the same community, finding the same group of people who are in their like manner, same lostness, and everybody moves when the magnet of Jesus comes in. Isn't that true about a magnet? You, you, you hover it over something, everything's moving. And some move away from him, and some are attracted to him. This is a paradox. We have to ask ourselves, what inclines our hearts to be attracted to Jesus, and what could incline our hearts to be repelled by him? where we become his detractors. Luke gives us basic insight in these two verses that comp comprise the introduction of this parable that we've been looking at for two weeks now, and today's the last uh, time that we'll spend in Luke chapter 15. I hope it's been profitable for you. My prayer as we've been in Luke 15 is that we might have the eyes of our hearts open to see how good our God is and how there's nothing he won't do to come get you. And, uh, and I want to just back the train, metaphorically speaking, all the way up to uh, Luke 15, verse 1, because in this we see the heartbeat for why this parable existed in the first place. And I wanted to walk us through the parable and then come back to this beginning because I think it shows us something interesting about our hearts. I'm going to read it again. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. Very simple introduction. You, you have three groups of people. You have the tax collectors and sinners, you have the Pharisees and scribes, and you have Jesus. You know, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're sort of on one side of the spectrum of like the most immoral and irreligious people in the world. And over here you have the Pharisees and the scribes, and they represent the teachers of the law. They represent the people who were religious people, moral people, good people. And right between these two poles, so to speak, is Jesus. Stuck in the middle, navigating his way through these crowds. And I just love the simplicity of these categories. And if we just take these categories, these people through this cast, we get a glimpse as to what attracts and repels our heart to Christ. And this is what I want to do today. I just want to look at the characters in this story. We have first tax collectors and sinners. And this is the people who have pushed in to hear Jesus you know, what we call today a, a group of people who have gathered together to hear Jesus, we call that a congregation. And, and, you know, it's not lost on you that you're sitting in a congregation, is it? I mean, you can look around at the people here. This is the congregation of the Hobart Porters campus for the first service today. You're here. Congratulations. You did it. This is our congregation. And I, as I studied Luke 15, as I looked at, it's gone now, but as I looked at that phrase that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him, it struck me that quite possibly this could have been the first 
congregation of the first church of Christ. A lot of churches will tell you they're the first congregation of the first church of Christ, the the first this, the first that, the first whatever. But um, we can't disagree with the fact that these are our Christian ancestors. These are possibly the first members of the church that Jesus ever had. And maybe you've been in a church that publicized the list of uh, notorious people who had come through their church. And maybe they say, well, well, the president used to go to our church, or we had such and such a pastor a long time ago. Or like, like, you know, that guy over there, he used to go to our church. Or the pastor puts his name up on the marquee outside the church to brag about who goes to the church. And Oftentimes, if you're trying to sell your church to your neighbors or someone like that, you're, you're trying to tell them who goes there, and you always pick out the good people that you think are the good people. And, and notice what Luke publicizes is the first church of Jesus. He's, he says, I don't, can we put it back up there just one more time, just head back to verse 1. He says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Wouldn't it be better in our churches if we had statues to the poor sinners who met Jesus in those churches? And I'm way more interested in having hundreds and thousands of people represented their souls encountering Jesus Christ in this place than I am uh, having mayors and governors and presidents even ever attending here. Why? Because the people that are attracted to Jesus are the ones who need him the most. The ones on the outside of society, the ones that are looked down upon. This is the congregation that Jesus pulls to himself. They were all drawing near to hear him. And this seems like such a nothing verse to us because we're used to all being sinners and we're all used to knowing that the tax collectors were IRS agents who robbed from the people, but... um, if we don't know our history, we can just think that this was like no big deal. Like, like Jesus was just associating with some people who that, you know, weren't preferred to be around. Um, I don't see any lawyers today, but you get the picture, right? You're like, oh, Jesus was hanging out with the lawyers, like the scummy lawyers, right? But this is not the problem. Um, here, here's the problem. Back, back in... Back in Jesus' day, if you don't know your Roman history, which is fine if you don't, I'll help you, um, you miss it. Back in the days of Jesus, the Roman Empire is stretched, its, its borders reached from England to India. Everybody say, wow. Yeah, America had nothing on the landmass of what the Roman Empire had in that day. So they would go through and take over a you know, country and city and, and set up their regime and their uh, their, their, their governance, they had the best army. They were well-equipped. They were well-led. They were ferocious. To top that all off, the, the Romans were ruthless people, absolutely ruthless. You know, we have all these, like, labor laws today, and we have all these laws for our government and for our military and how you can act and codes of honor and things like this. None of that existed in the Roman day. All for Rome was the motto. And if you could pillage and get whatever you wanted along the way, you did that. The Roman world, it was uh, ruled by Caesar. He would send his troops town after town, establishing themselves to the rulers, and, that, that all, and they would take over the town. All that you and I would create as citizens of this town that had been occupied by Rome. Now, everything that we would make, everything that we would create, everything that we would sell, every service that we offered would be given back to Rome, be given back to Caesar who is the conqueror of the world and inventor of a salad. 
I don't, I don't know why we got this. That's fine. The problem in the Roman world was that people, kind of like you'd imagine us today, didn't want to be taken over. So every once in a while, an insurrection would surge up and people would rebel. And how do you, how do you squash an insurrection that can pop up anywhere in your empire between England and India? Like one could pop up, it could take you an entire year to get your army over there to push down the rebellion. Today, all you have to do is threaten pushing that little button on your desk, and everybody's like, whoa, 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 that's going to be crazy. That didn't exist back then. And so what you did, you had a massive, incredibly huge army. And how did you pay for a massive, massive army? Taxes. You would tax the people heavily. You would, you would use taxes and levying their things against them. If you lost to Rome in the battle, you lost to them in everything else in your life. All of a sudden, all of your money becomes theirs. All of a sudden, all of your uh, occupation becomes theirs. Everything exists to go back to Rome. So much so that part of the Roman ferocity and, 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 and ruthlessness was that they would use Taxes and fear tactics to, to rule their, their, their whole people. We have records on account of people uh, being laid siege to by the Roman Empire. The Roman army coming in and taking uh, one account says 20,000 uh, men, women, and children. And the Romans crucified them outside the gate of the city, lining the roads, going literally to what are called crossroads. Crossroads, not because they cross and form a T, but crossroads because there used to be crosses at them in the Roman army, in the Roman Empire. And all the poor peasants who would be wandering into city to get their supplies and to get whatever goods they needed, they would walk past this horrific image of what happens to you if you disobey the Roman army, if you rebel against the Roman people. This is the day and age that Jesus existed. This is the day and age that the people were living in when Jesus came to them. And so for you to have a tax collector in your neighborhood, here's what a tax collector was. It was your neighbor, a fellow Jew, who bought from Rome the right to tax all the people on the block, skim a little bit off the top, and send all that money back to Caesar so that Caesar could pay the army that was inhabiting and occupying your neighborhood in the first place. You get the picture? We have nothing in the world today that I know of that actually computes in the same degree where it's a one-to-one -one comparison. Like the best I can think of is if, let's just all be hypothetical, crazy, and like just insane for a moment. What if Kim Jong-un, is that his name? Un? Un? Kim Jong-un, uh, you know, comes and takes us all over. And all of a sudden there's like a, a trillion North Korean people all over the place. And um, standing outside the door here, our North Korean officials, and, um, and they're all here to tax us. And all of your offering today was like, well, that's great. That's not going to God. That's going to Kim Jong-un. How would you feel? I rate, I know. And nevertheless, all of a sudden it's known to you, let's just make me the bad guy, that I bought from Kim Jong-un the right to tax you through an offering and to give him all that money and skim a little bit off the top. How do you feel about your pastor now? You want to punch me, don't you? You're like, how dare you? You're paying the people who pillaged and destroyed our town so that they can stay here. That's not what we're trying to do, man. We're trying to get them out of here. But you're joining their team. Despicable. 
This is what a tax collector was. Listen, I think Zacchaeus was called a wee little man, not because he was short, but because people in the community looked at him and they would say, you're, a, you're nothing, man. You're a man of low stature. And why did he climb up that tree? Not because he was short. Because if he stayed on the ground, he'd get beat. So you get why when Jesus goes over to the tree and looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down here. It's okay. I'm going to eat with you today. Everyone else in the crowd would have been irate. Everyone else in the crowd would have been absolutely livid. Everyone else would have been, oh, what is this guy doing? I thought he was a friend of ours, but not a friend of the Romans. And the tax collectors, they were ruthlessly bad, dirty, sleazy, scum of the earth type of people. And this is the situation Luke reports happened all around Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners were coming all Notice that. They were all drawing near to him. And, and we, we can't imagine that every single tax collector and every single sinner was coming near to Jesus. But that word all rather implies every type of sinner. Every type of sinner was drawing in. It was sinner, you have the tax collectors. That's kind of what they are. The sinners, they were more than just an identification of someone who had, you know, violated God's law. In that day and age, it was a class of people Sinners were bottom feeders. They were lowlifes. They were junkies. They were prostitutes who had no family. And sinners included even people who were born with bodily defects and disformities and issues. You, you remember um, that, that scene in that movie, The Greatest Showman, if you've seen that recently came out. It's about P.T. Barnum, and he goes around building his circus and there's that one scene where he goes and he's looking for interesting people. And he goes and he picks up all this like ragtag group of people, all the people that society's laughing at and they're, they're joking. But he sees them and he, he draws them all together. That's the picture here. Jesus has what they, in, in the movie, they called him a freak show. That, that's, this is what's going on. Jesus is drawing to himself the worst of the worst and the people that nobody wanted to be associated with. You remember John chapter 9, a man is born blind from birth, and the Pharisees asked Jesus the question, who sinned that this man was born blind? That was their category. Their assumption was that he was a sinner. He was of that paltry class of people because he had a disformity, a disability. These are people who have no upward mobility. They have no positive legacy in their life. They have no education. They aren't able to make it. Some have joined the Romans because it's economically advantageous. They are hated people. They are despised people. They are the worst of people. And they're the ones Jesus draws to himself. The first congregation of the church of Jesus, eager to hear him, accepted by him, they finally found their place in this world. And I, don't, I just have to stop because I don't know where you come into our church today. I don't know if you come in with a long line of Bible studies and classes and knowing things. Or I don't know if you come in today feeling like God was going to strike you down if you walked through those doors. And that everybody here was going to look at you and wonder like, why is he here? But I hope it's comforting for you to know that Jesus specializes in drawing people who the world has thought little of to himself. Je Jesus wants you. To be here. He welcomes you into his congregation. He loves you so much. And if it wasn't for that, none of us could sit here with any twinge of hope in our hearts because of who he is.
Jesus is building for himself a congregation of misfits. And how many people know that where there's a work of God being built, there is an enemy close at hand to destroy? Yeah. You just come over to my house and watch my kids play with blocks. That's what happens. One builds, the other's like, ah, Moses was up on the mountain talking to the creator of the universe. Meanwhile, Aaron was down below leading the people into sin. And Nehemiah came back from his exile to rebuild the walls of uh, Jerusalem. And who came but Sanballat and his other goony kings around him to destroy the work and to frustrate the work that God was building. Wherever God is building, there is always an enemy close at hand waiting to destroy. And we see that so clearly here in the Pharisees and the scribes. They are what I want to call the critics. If the sinners and the tax collectors are the congregation, we see that the Pharisees and scribes are the critics. Notice this. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, having just told you what I told you about tax collectors, you, you may agree with the Pharisees, have a little angst over Jesus associated with the tax collectors, knowing how they must have felt betrayed by their own people. But their complaint stems from two actions, re- re- receiving, right? This man receives sinners, and then notice as he eats with them. To receive and to eat is their issue. To understand why this is such a big deal, there's you know, one more piece of culture from that day. Back in that day, a noble person would demonstrate their generosity by feeding the hungry and poor sinners. It was what they were expected to do. You were generous if you opened your table up to the hungry and the poor, to the sinner, and, and let them eat at your table. But you, as the noble person, would never join them. You, you would just kind of do that thing where you pack the whole, uh, you know, harvest market pantry bag and you give it to somebody else and you say, here, here's some food, go take it. Uh, we might be guilty of this today. You, you don't have hungry people over to your house whenever they're hungry, you more, more likely than not, I, I don't know. For the most part, our generosity today is almost the same. It was considered in this day, though, ignoble for you to sit down at the table to welcome these guests in and to validate their existence with you by sitting at the table with them. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's making everyone feel insecure. The appropriate measure of social care and concern was simply just to let them go on their way or to eat and then finish up and then you eat your meal. To eat with someone at your table was to share your very life with them. It was a sign of camaraderie and acceptance. For Jesus to accept these sinful people who have rebelled against their own kind was controversial to the point that the Pharisees criticized him and later condemned him to die. They grumbled, Luke says which implies that they were often and always complaining about this, never ceasing. And parents, you get that. Grumbling kids, never satisfied. It's way too radical for them to think that a man like Jesus was respected. He would associate with those who hated God. And these two verses in Luke 15, we see the pride and the privilege which brew into this perfect cocktail of poison that the Pharisees drink. I see five attitudes in just this one verse here, verse 2, that I think if we don't acknowledge and and we don't uh, point out, they could be left unchecked in our own heart and lead us down this road of bitterness to the point where we destroy what God is trying to build ourselves. First first and foremost, just five five really quick poisons of the Pharisees. Just one verse, don't worry, it's not going to take forever, just one verse. 
Five, five poisons. First, I see they subject God to their own standards. Notice what they say. They say, this man. You know, last week we looked at the critique of the elder son against the father. He said to his dad, he didn't say, father, you know, listen, hear me out. He says to his dad, hey, look, you. This is the same thing that the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. They say, hey, this guy over here. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's a Pharisee. He's one of the leading religious rulers of the day. And he says, he confesses to Jesus. He says, we know that you are from God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do the things that you do. They know who Jesus is, and yet when they see him interacting in ways that they don't expect God to interact with people, they look at him and they denounce and they say, no, this guy over here, this guy, it's not Jesus, he's not Lord, it's not the Messiah. He's clearly not the Messiah because of what he's doing. They subject God to their standards. What they thought God should do was come and kick the Romans out. They thought they were waiting for this political insurrectionist, this warrior, this man of high noble character who played by the rules of society and all they got from Jesus here was a soft-hearted, politically indifferent, gracious teacher. He didn't meet their standards. Ironically enough, at the end of Jesus' life, the same Pharisees would betray him to the Romans and they would say this about him. They would say, hey, this guy is a warrior. This guy is a political insurrectionist. This guy said he was king of the Jews. They weren't convinced of Jesus' authority or authenticity because what he was doing was contrary to their standards or expectations. And listen, friends, when we think God has to do what we think needs to be done, we've drank the poison. When you and I sit back and we look at what God is doing and we say, well, he's not doing it fast enough, or he's not doing it thoroughly enough, or, or it, we're supposed to be a church like this, and we're doing this, and yet God's not blessing this, or whatever, whatever we think it is that God has to do for us, and he doesn't do it. When we judge him accordingly, and we forget all of his promises, and forget all that he's done, we just judge him against what we think needs to be, we are Pharisees. Number two, they, they make fellowship with man a test of authentic ministry. They grumble about this. This man receives his fellowship with sinners. And who you associated with confirmed or denied your ministry back in this day. So when Jesus associated with the wrong people, they criticized him and became detractors of his ministry. And we ought to pause here to remember that Jesus welcomed sinners and wanted sinners and loved sinners. Like it's kind of good when the church feels a little bit like a psych ward meets the country club. Like, you just have all these people from the whole spectrum of life coming together. and Definitely is a sign of a healthy church where Jesus is at work. We're all people from all sorts of social classes, ethnicities, educational backgrounds. They gather together in Jesus' name to hear Jesus. And just as much as Jesus loved the sinners, he also loved the Pharisees too. Which means for us as a church... We have to watch this critical spirit of making fellowship with a man the test of authentic ministry. So many churches back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even today would look at their pastor and criticize him and call him a certain type of person if he ever fellowshiped with the wrong type of other Christian. And is that not the height of pharisaical thinking or what? And I have friends today in the pastorate who, if I were to go to certain churches and preach a message or even just be on the stage, they would disown me. And friends, let's not be like that. 
let's not assume that who we fellowship with here on earth has any type of authenticity for the ministry that God is doing in our church. Here's number three. They lump everyone together. They say, this man receives sinners, but that's it. He doesn't say, they don't say tax collectors. They just say sinners. All of them. They're all sinners in their eyes. And while that's theologically true and technically true that all of us are sinners, not every tax collector in this day might have belonged to that class of people. But no matter, here's the principle, if you associate with them, you are one of them. God, help us not be a church that assumes the worst about one another. This is the poison Jesus calls out at the end of Luke 15, where the elder brother rails against his younger brother, accusing him of squandering the father's property with prostitutes. I made mention of this last week, that Jesus didn't tell us what he did, but no matter, the self-righteous Pharisee makes assumptions about other people and lumps them all together in this other category that must be rejected and condemned. If I can just pause on this point for a moment, I've observed the American church as having categorized our own class of sinners in our day. And it's funny because they're contradictory. I guess I'd call them tribes. They're the left-wing media or the right-wing politician sinners. They're the abortion activist or the pro-life advocate. Our society calls either one of them sinners. They're the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, plus community, or they're the traditional marriage defenders. They're the public school families or they're the homeschool families. They're the fundamentalists or they're the charismatics. For the, for the Pharisees, here's the point, the sinners are just anyone who's other than me. And if you ever feel that, if you've swallowed the most bitter, poisonous, powerful pill that the Pharisees could give you. The self-righteousness that denies the need that you have for God. That's the poisonous thought that God can't love anyone like me. And so if I can point my finger, that's the fourth thing that they do. They point the finger at everyone else to escape their own, their own sin. If I can point the finger at the other people, it makes me feel better about my own sin you trace the storyline of the Pharisees throughout the rest of the book of Luke, you see them detract from Jesus, his ministry, time and time again as they boast of their own accomplishments. They argue against Jesus. They try and trick Jesus into admitting his own unlawfulness, like when he heals on the Sabbath. Jesus calls them out. He says, you hypocrites. He says that twice, once in Luke 13, once in Luke 14, leading up to this. He says, everyone else knows their sinfulness except you. And if we've ever felt that we're the only Non-sinful people here, friends, fall on your face and repent. Finally, I think they worry about the wrong part of the process. Notice this. It's not up there. This man receives sinners and eats with them. As if to say, just by accepting people into your home and sharing a meal with them condemns you to be a false prophet. To eat with a sinner was to share life with a sinner. The major complaint was who was showing up at Jesus' sermons and then who was showing up at Jesus' table. But it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who observed that we don't hold physicians to this sort of standard. We've got a lot of doctors in Northwest Indiana, but I've never heard it said of a doctor. Um, Do you know that almost all the people who come into his office are really sick? I would never go to that guy. That physician sees too many people with cancer and I don't want to catch that. I saw a woman the other day go into his office, and she could hardly breathe. Could you imagine being there? And even worse, someone went in the other day unconscious. 
And he received them. No. Church, listen, listen. It's not about who's coming in. It's never about who's coming in. It's all about how they leave once they've met with the doctor. And the Pharisees never bothered to wonder, once these sinners encounter Jesus, what happens to their life? Once these people who have deformities and disabilities, once they meet Jesus, what happens? And we have page after page after page after page in the New Testament of miracles of Jesus meeting the sinner class and healing them, bringing them to life, raising them up, setting them out as successful society members, people who are part of the kingdom of God on the mission for him to tell the good news about who Jesus is. This is what our doctor does for us when we come to him in our sinfulness. And so, hey, hey, listen, enough of that attitude in our lives of thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe that person's here. Wrong part of the process. Here's why it's really hard for us not to be a Pharisee. is because we're not patient people. We'll let you sit in your sin. We'll tell you the good news. Who knows what God's doing on your heart? Who knows what working he's doing outside of the community, what he's doing to press into you and to shape you and to really get your attention. But no, it's been, it's been two days and you haven't repented, man. So, like, get out of here. And, 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 Lord, we ask that we would be people who don't fixate on the process, but rather point people to the Savior. It's at the table of Jesus that the parable of the lost sheep is told, where the sinner is encouraged no matter How far they've wandered away from God, he will come back and get them. It's at the table of Jesus that the parable of the lost coin is told. And the sinner hears how precious they are to God and that he will go to diligent lengths to find them and empower them. It's at the table of Jesus that the sinner knows that no matter how rebellious they've been, the Father will call them sons again. Because when you eat with Jesus, you're given responsibility and worth and life and legacy. When you meet with a doctor, he gives you the new life you need to be resurrected from your death. So friends, let's be wary of the poison of the Pharisees, the judgmental, self-righteous, life-squandering poison that assumes that God is for them and not for his own glory when the lost are found. See, here's what we need to do. God forbid us stay in this category or to lean to this category. But God, help us be attracted to the middle, the person of Jesus. He is the attraction. Between the sinners and the Pharisees is Jesus. And Jesus receives them. Not to discredit his authentic ministry, but because he loves them. And what does Jesus do with sinners? He makes them repentant sinners, believing sinners, blood-washed sinners. I don't think anyone is more attracted to Jesus or attractive to Jesus than the one who comes to him empty-handed, aware of their need, and trusting in the work that he did on the cross for them. How amazing it is. Isn't this true? How amazing is it for us to know that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them? And in eating with them, he gives his eternal life and glory to those who don't otherwise deserve it. See, we, we expect the righteous to be saved and the lost to be damned, but Jesus finds the lost and humbles the proud. 
And I hope some of you today who are lost in your sin would find Jesus more attractive to you than your rebellion. And I don't want to shrink away from the idea that we have before us. Some of you might think that this news sounds too good to be true. And in hearing that it is, you might think it's too good to be true. We're conditioned to think that. But listen, we have a promise from Jesus that those who come to him empty-handed with nothing but their sins will find fullness of joy and forever forgiveness in him. And that offer is not too good to be true. It's just simply good and true. All of us can come. And I pray that the biggest tax collector in this room right now, the one who feels outcast by their neighbors, like they can't show their face around the county because of their sins, might come to Jesus in repentance and faith and be, believe in him and be welcomed at his table. And this is the end to which all saved sinners, all of us, saints in Jesus who still battle, we are destined to this end. We're destined to be welcomed to the grand party, the greatest table in eternity. The disciple John, who ate with Jesus in his life, before John died, he recorded his revelation at the end of all things, this picture. He saw a heavenly banquet set before him, and those who believed in Jesus were received by him to eat with him in the heavenlies. The irony of the critics here in Luke 15 is absolutely right, just in a greater scale than they ever imagined. Yes, Jesus receives and eats with sinners. Yes, that's what he did, but he does that today, and he will do that tomorrow. And friends, you and I are welcome at that table. And so are you a sinner? Do you feel afraid of God or even forgotten by society? Are you aware of your sickness of your soul? Listen, Jesus knows you and welcomes you. He wants you to come to his table and eat with him in the sharing of his eternal life. We come empty-handed. We come in our mess. We come as a rebel and a squanderer and a sinner. We come and we find food for our soul and water that doesn't run dry. We believe that he came to seek us and to save us by paying our debt on the cross and defeating death by resurrecting to newness of life. And you and I, friends, here in our community together, we remind ourselves that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them every single time we take communion. Communion has been called the Lord's table. It's spread for sinners. Sinners who are blood washed, but sinners still. I often feel as if I could not come to the cross any way but a sinner. Singing that old hymn, not the good that I have done, but nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's at the cross that we've been forgiven at the table. Remember the sacrifice that Jesus made to receive us and make us whole. And Paul urges us to remember the body that was broken for us and the blood that was spilled out for us as a way of proclaiming the death of Jesus until he comes again and brings us to the great banquet table in eternity where we will feast and share eternal life in all its real and tangible and perfect ways. And to the table, we're going to come right now. We're going to take a part partake of communion right now. Friends, I want to let you know this. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you receive him now? He died that you might be saved. We come to the table and remember that no man or woman comes to the table who is not a sinner. And let no one come today, he who thinks he is nothing to repent of, he who thinks he has made it in this life. Friend, you ought to repent of your self-righteousness in that attitude. Each and every one of us comes today to the table that Jesus has laid before us with his own body and his own blood saying, come to me, I receive you sinners. Sinners, all of you. He came to die for us sinners that we might be received by him.
But we know that those who come to this table are also more than sinners. They are sinners who have been received by God, who have made, been made saints by the blood, body and the blood. They've been attracted to Jesus, the Savior. So as we take communion, may we remember that this man receives sinners. And he eats with them. Let me invite the volunteers to come forward and to distribute the elements. I want you to reflect and pray. Repent. Believe. And in a moment, I'll come back and we'll take communion together and we'll respond by singing together. Let's go to the table. we come to the table this morning each one of us a sinner how, how crazy is it to know that Jesus welcomes you because of Jesus' sacrifice we can sit at the table of God come to him not by our own righteousness but by his come to him despite all the things that we've done against him but because we have a good perfect Savior. We're received 
and welcomed. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it in front of his disciples. He gave it to them and he said, this bread represents my body which is broken for you. Take, eat. And in the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup. And he said to his disciples, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant that God would be with man and man could be with God.